0: I'm Joel Goldberg, Kansas City Royals television broadcaster. I host the pre- and post-game show, have a podcast named rounding the bases, a book, as well as I'm a public speaker, and you are listening to the Shadows Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 13 of the Shadows Podcast. I was honored to have with us retired Army Major General John Gronski as a guest this week. During this episode, The Chronicles of John Gronsky, he shares stories from his 40-plus years of military service, along with all the remarkable things he's accomplished outside of the military. I encourage you to check out John's book, The Ride of Our Lives, Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love. The link is attached in the description of this episode. If you've been following us on social media, you know that we have some incredible upcoming guests, so make sure you're staying up to date on all the latest episode releases, guests and books that we encourage you to go out and read over at our Facebook page at The Shadows Podcast. Give us a like, go over to Instagram, follow us on at the underscore shadows underscore podcast. And also now we're available on LinkedIn at The Shadows Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this loaded episode with Leadership Lessons. Welcome to the Shadows Podcast. Welcome everybody to another episode of Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Bodenheimer. So today I am excited to have retired Major General John Gronsky, a proven combat leader with over 40 years of active duty and National Guard experience in the United States Army. He's a leadership and peak performance expert, motivational storyteller, author, so much more Sir, welcome to Shadows Podcast.
0: Hey, Bodhi, it's great to be with you. Thank you for hosting uh, me on your show today. Appreciate Abs- it. Absolutely.
1: Definitely looking forward to it. Before I get started, I got some rapid fire questions like we've been doing with all our other guests. First one for you. Other than yours, what book would you recommend to somebody?
0: Yeah, the, the list uh, could be very extensive. Uh, in terms of a, a military book, I mean, We Were Soldiers Once and Young has always been a uh, a favorite of mine, uh, the Leadership Engine by Noel Tichi, uh, just for a general leadership book, non-military. Uh, but uh, it, it's basically focuses on the need for leaders to have a teachable perspective, you know, to tell stories and to inspire their followers by the the personal stories they tell. So uh, those are two favorites. We were
1: talking before we we hit record. We have both spent time in Europe favorite
0: vacation spot in europe wow i'd say austria austria so the the reason and my i think my favorite you know i've been to prague which is a beautiful city but i really love salzburg and Mm. uh and i'm also trying to make points with my wife since she's an austrian so (laughs) (laughs) when she listens to this podcast she'll be happy to hear that i recommend austria as a as a vacation spot but But I'll tell you, I also have a great affinity for Lithuania. Uh, Lithuania, uh, a Baltic country, uh, was um, basically illegally annexed by the Soviet Union, uh, World War II timeframe. I spent a year there back in 2000. uh, And then I also spent a lot of time there between 2016 and 2019. Just a fabulous uh, country, which is a hidden gem Uh, visit, visit the capital city of Vilnius in Lithuania. One of the few spots we didn't get to go
1: to while we were over there, but we spent plenty of time in Austria and it is beautiful rope climbing
0: there. That was, that was amazing.
1: (laughs) What is your go-to workout music?
0: I'd say ACDC. Uh, you know, I, I like it. It kind of pumps me up and, uh, that's why I I usually work out to ACDC Metallica, uh, music like that. Give
1: us a couple of hobbies that people may not know that you're interested in.
0: Yeah. I love the, well, I love the bicycle ride. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I, I, I also love to work out at the gym, but in March of this year, uh, my wife and I decided to stop going to the gym and just do, you know, work out at home. And one of the favorite things we love to do is, is bicycle ride together. Uh, and, uh uh, one of the favorite routes we have is about 28 miles and um, we like to get out there together and, 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 bike. And it's great to do that in the, in the fresh and open air. And uh, thankfully in Pennsylvania uh, and I know we're recording this in, in, in uh, early December, but the weather's still been decent here uh, to get out and bicycle just the other day we went out for about a 30 mile bike ride. Wow.
1: Uh, to get things started with your journey. Uh, tell us about your upbringing. Uh,
0: it was in Northeast Pennsylvania. Yeah, I grew up in a small town, Music, Pennsylvania, about five thousand people, uh, just south of of Scranton, and uh, you know, just just a blue collar region, uh, fairly economically depressed. Uh, you know, I was I was born in in the late fifties, so again, just growing up late fifties into the sixties fairly economically depressed area because it, it, it had been a coal region and the coal mines really closed down in the forties. And uh, you know, the region's been struggling since then. Uh, but um, you know, had a, a, a great family. My father uh, had a seventh grade education. Uh, reason, reason he only had a seventh grade education is because uh, his father worked in the coal mines and died in the coal mines, uh, when my father's mother was five months pregnant with my dad. So, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, born into the world with, without, a, a father. And so at the age of about 12, 13 years old, uh, he had to leave school after completing seventh grade and start working. And then he worked his entire life was a world war II veteran. And when he came back from the war, he opened up, uh, a garage, started repairing cars and started selling cars. So, you know, when um, I, I grew up in a family business where we had a garage used car lot, towing, tow trucks, towing service, and just kind of grew up in that, in that working environment. The other thing uh, that was kind of a setback to my family is my, my mom died three days after I was born. So uh, I was the youngest of seven children. So here was my dad uh, just starting a business, essentially, and uh, finding himself uh, uh, without a wife and with seven kids to raise. So, you know, it was, uh, I, I guess when you look back on it, it could be considered a tough life, but it was the life we knew. Uh, there was a lot of love in the family and, and uh, just learned how to, uh, how to work hard and try to make, a, you know, uh, the best living uh, that, that you could for yourself.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. Did he ever share with you what he did in uh, World War II?
0: Yeah, actually, he was he was in the uh, the the Air Corps, the Army Air Corps, and he was a cook. Wow! Uh, because he did work in restaurants prior to uh, the war. I don't know how he ever got into the you know uh, car business because he he worked in restaurants most of uh, his life leading up to World War II. But he was he was a cook and a favorite. You know, he didn't talk about the war much, you know, but but he did uh, mention one time uh, when Eisenhower came into the mess hall where he was cooking. And that was uh, obviously a big treat for him and everybody else who was involved with uh, preparing the food there. I bet. Yeah, I, I've uh, read several books on Eisenhower and, and how, uh, you know, talking about mentorship. His mentor was a, uh, a general, not, not very well known, Fox Connor. Uh, who was uh, one of Eisenhower's mentors and really kind of uh, taught him a lot about leadership and, and took him under his wing? And yeah, and anything on Eisenhower is, is a very uh, interesting read for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, what made you uh, want to join the military?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the 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 true, truthful answer is I wanted to get out of my hometown. Right. You know. Um, and then uh, you know, I ended up spending 40 years in, in, in the army between active duty and the National Guard. So uh the main reason was hey, want to leave my hometown, want to get get out and see the world a little bit. Uh I knew my my father always encouraged me to join the military. So I mm-hmm. knew he would be be proud of me if I if I did go down that route. And uh it was really the best decision I ever made in my life. I've uh, you know, uh, made so many friends, uh, so many uh, a- a adventures, and uh, and just the honor of serving one's country. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I love asking people. You know, not just why did they join, but why did they select the branch that they did? Yeah. Uh, I heard the the story when we were interviewing uh, one of our previous episodes about John Levito, and how he wanted to join the Navy, but Uh, he ended up going to uh, the the Air Force recruiter instead. Uh, What made you decide to join the Army?
0: Yeah, I guess, uh, again, when I was a kid, uh, growing up in school, I loved to read books about World War II. I mean, they were my favorite books to read. And most of the books I read about World War II uh, focused on the Army, uh, the Army's role in, in that war. And so I guess when I thought of the military, I just naturally thought of the army as the branch of the military that one should join. So I think that was the main reason.
1: Okay. Cause you were active duty until 1982, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. What were some of the early lessons you learned young in your career?
0: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, And again, I I was uh, uh, commissioned out of the ROTC university of Scranton and one thing that they, uh, taught us there was the reliance on the experience of, of a good non-commissioned officer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just, just going into active duty, I, I realized uh, that, uh, again, you have to take things with a grain of salt. You just can't uh, immediately assume every non-commissioned officer is, is the person to listen to, but you can kind of pick out the ones who the soldiers respect and who who really know their stuff from a tactical and technical and leadership perspective. And, and, uh, you know, just, just to, uh, uh, you know, give people with, with more experience than, than you have, uh, the, the opportunity to, to listen to them hear what their recommendations are, but again, as, as, as a leader, you ultimately have to make the final decision, but mm-hmm. a good technique is to, uh, is to, uh, give, give some people with a little bit more experience, uh, uh, the the time to listen to what they have to say. Yeah, absolutely.
1: We said 1982, you decided to make the transition to the National Guard. What kind of led to that decision?
0: Yeah, it, it wasn't really a uh, decision to transition to the National Guard. It was just a decision to leave active duty. Um it, it was 1982. There wasn't really that much going on in, you know, in the military back then, uh, to be quite honest about it. And uh, I had a young son and, and a wife and uh, just decided to, you know, we were, we were stationed up in Fort Lewis, Washington, and just, just decided to make a transition out and try something new with our life. And uh, it was as simple as that. Uh, and, uh, it wasn't until I decided to move back to Northeastern Pennsylvania to my, to my hometown that somebody had mentioned to me, uh, that I should consider joining the national guard. I didn't even know what the national guard was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then somebody said, yeah, you know, you spent four years in the, in the army, you know, you should consider joining the national guard. I went down to the local armory and talked to some folks there and, and, uh, decided to give it a try.
1: What was the biggest difference you noticed between active duty and National Guard?
0: Yeah, uh, well, back then in '82, in in Pennsylvania, uh, the guard was just transitioning from, oh, I, I could say what probably was considered as a a less a less professional type of outfit to a more profesh- professional outfit. That was when the transition started. And that was really due to some of the the leaders we had in the Pennsylvania National Guard at the time, making that transition to a more professional uh, disciplined uh, type of organization. And so um, the the other, the other difference is in the National Guard. uh, It's basically uh, a hometown centered type of unit where You'll have um, you know people in Pennsylvania, at least, from small communities with an armory in the community, where you'll have a, a father, a son, and a grandson, potentially all joining the same unit. Sometimes at the same time, uh, depending on, on on their age differences, and and so it's really a hometown-based unit. And the other thing with National Guard is it's not only the federal mission, but it's also the state mission. So if mm-hmm. there's some type of um, Local disaster, hurricane, flood, snowstorm—anything like that—you know the guard will be called up to support their neighbors, which is kind of a nice part of the mission. Yeah.
1: Okay, so from then, this is this is an interesting piece that I want to uh, talk about with you. So, uh, your wife and your 15-month-old son uh, hopped on a couple of bikes, and tell tell the audience if they have never heard. Uh, this story, just kind of a screenshot about a book that you have written called "The Ride of Our Lives: Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love." Which-
0: yeah, um, yeah. Again, I, I left the army in '82. Was was uh, working up in Tacoma, Washington, as a alcoholism counselor, and I uh, was also working at Mount Rainier National Park as a as a park aide, and uh, then made the decision around uh, probably January of 1983 that we were going to move back to Northeastern Pennsylvania. And since we were living on the West coast and moving back to the East coast, I had this brainstorm uh, that I shared with my wife. Hey, since we're going from one coast to another, how about if we make it an adventure, you know, let's, let's bicycle across the United States. And uh, she, she agreed to that. She was an adventurous person anyway. And uh, I, I bought a, a bicycle trailer that we could, you know, transport our 15-month-old son, Stephen, in. And in the end of May 1983, we started on what turned out to be an over 4,000-mile adventure across the United States. And three months on the road, uh, a a two-man backpacking tent, two sleeping bags, a little one-burner camping stove, and our gear packed into our bicycle bags, which are known as panniers that were strapped to the side of the bike. And and, and off we went. And I'll, I'll tell you that first day, uh, as we bicycled away from the apartment that we had been staying in, and all we had was bicycles, you know, and uh, I think we were the ultimate thin-skinned vehicles, I like to say. And uh, our bikes that first day, we were, we were planning on doing 30 miles the first day, because I had a friend who lived 30 miles away that we planned on staying with. And our bikes were just all over the the roadway. I mean they, they were unbalanced because of the way I loaded up those those bicycle bags. Mm. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, man, how are we ever gonna make it? This is not a good
1: this was good on paper.
0: <laughs> this is not a good start, man. So we got to our friend's house and I jettisoned, you know, all kinds of I had canned food, right? So canned food that that, that was a no-go. You no, know, so jettisoned that. And then uh, I, I remember reading in a book before our trip that you should weigh your panniers and make sure, you know, the, the bicycle packs on each side of your bike weigh the same weight so you balance the bike. And I didn't pay any attention to that advice, you know, but, but when I got to our friend's house after, you know, having that difficulty making it there, I, I, I weighed every bag to make sure they were the equal weight on each side of the bike. And, and then we, when we started off from our friend's house again about two days later, bikes were fantastic. Uh, so, uh, it, it does pay to listen to sound advice. So, during that that three-month
1: journey, I, I just have to ask about this, because I saw that you had to endure rain, wind, traffic, and an angry bull. Yeah, Where did, where did you encounter the bull?
0: Yeah, it was in uh, in Oregon. Uh, we were crossing the Cascade Mountains. Uh, we came over a pass and had a, a seven-mile descent down into a valley, and it was I remember when we got to the top of the pass, you know, we hit snow up there. And then as we're going down the, the seven mile descent, it was raining. And so we had on our red rain rain jackets and we get down into the valley just as the rain was stopping. And there was like this mist lift, lifting off the road in front of us. And we're, we're biking down this rural road, hadn't seen a car in about 15, 20 minutes on the road. And as we're biking through this mist, we see this image in front of us we both stopped and we're staring at it thinking, what is that thing? And as it gets closer, we were able to see it was a bull. And and this bull, which must have escaped from a farmer's field, started pawing at the roadway and it was blowing steam out of its nose. So you're a matador at this point. Yeah. I thought that only happened in cartoons, you know, this whole steam coming out of it. And you had the red jacket, right? We had the red jackets on. So uh, (laughs) we're, we're, we're basically stopped there and we're, you know, we're trying to devise a plan of what we're going to do. And uh, all of a sudden this, this car comes up alongside of us from behind us. And the guy in the driver's seat looked like a farmer, just the way he was dressed, coveralls, flannel shirt. And he said, Hey guys, it looks like you got yourself in some trouble. He goes, this is what we're going to do. He goes, you keep your bikes to the left side of my car. I'll keep the bull to the right side of my car. And we'll, we'll kind of go by him together. And he goes, we'll keep on going down the road about another quarter mile or so till we're, you know, out of sight of the bull. And uh, we did that, we executed that plan. And it worked. And uh, I I like to say that's where divine intervention entered into our trip, because honestly, hadn't seen a car in about 20 minutes, he came out of nowhere, uh, had enough sense uh, to stop and help us. And uh, that plan worked. And I, I kind of shudder to think what would have happened if he didn't come by.
1: Wow. That is talk about timing. <laughs> so y'all finished that, that journey. And like I said, it was a three month journey. Uh, y'all, y'all get done with it. What was the one thing that you and your wife looked back at and learned about yourselves?
0: Yeah, uh, I think the thing we learned about ourselves is not, not once during that trip, and it, it was a hard trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this was 83. It was an analog world back then. No Google, no internet, no, no mobile phones, no GPS. Um, never once did we ever discuss quitting or, 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 or giving up. And, uh, you know, we, we crossed the Cascades, the Rockies, the Ozark Mountains, into the Appalachians, Uh, going across you know we went all the way down to Pueblo Colorado before turning into Kansas and hitting the winds in Kansas so I mean the the physical nature of the trip was very difficult and then having our son with us I mean uh, you know that that uh, provided another dimension a lot of a lot of joy in that to do it as a family but then again you're you're taking care of a a toddler along the way Uh, but never once did we ever discuss uh, quitting and so I think the thing we learned about ourselves is you know when we make our minds up to do something we 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 see it through and we relied on one another we leaned on one another some days I had to lean on her some Mm -hmm. days she had to lean on me and um, I I think that's what we learned and that's why the subtitle of the book is lessons on life leadership and love because we learned all of those lessons along the way that come across during the course of the book yeah my, my wife and I drove
1: from South Carolina to Arizona. And when I, when I told her about your journey and she was like, they were on, she's like, we almost killed each other in, in a car going across country, but someone wants to check out the book. Where should you point them to?
0: Yeah. I mean, they could get it on Amazon or, uh, you know, I have my own e-commerce website. Uh, they go to uh, johngronsky.com and then click on the Leader Grove store. And uh, I'll send them a, a signed copy of my, my book. So you can either get it on my website or or Amazon.com. Awesome.
1: Yeah, definitely go ahead and check that out. Um, so after that, y'all end up in Pennsylvania, and uh, you know National Guard. Uh, what were some big things that stood out between that time and early two thousands?
0: Yeah, um, I, I had some some opportunities uh, in the National Guard. Had an opportunity to command an infantry company, uh, which was just a f- fantastic experience. Uh, you know, being, a, a, and I, I took that company out to the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California, which back in the mid 80s was unusual for a, a National Guard company to have that opportunity to go to the National Training Center and, and conduct operations as an opposing force company you know, against, uh, one of the, uh, us, uh, units that were training there as a, as a, you know, part of their training program. So that, that was extremely interesting. And then in the national guard, I had an opportunity to go to ranger school. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, basically, uh, put in for, uh, the infantry officer advanced course to resident course and being a national guardsman, it wasn't that common for, a uh, uh, a National Guard officer to go to the infantry officer advanced course, uh, the resident course at Fort Benning, but went down there and went through that course for six months. And then while I was there, I uh, had the opportunity to uh, put in for ranger school and was lucky enough to be accepted to go to ranger school and then completed ranger school, while I was there. So they, they, they were just some phenomenal opportunities yeah. that I, I had as a, as a National Guardsman.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, some of the various trainings you had airborne school yeah Mm -hmm. uh ranger school infantry officer advanced course you just mentioned and then um army war college which one of those really stands out as like that was that was the one where i learned the most about myself
0: yeah well i mean uh, certainly ranger school uh for sure i mean ranger school is is known in the army as the premier leadership school uh when i went through uh it included the desert phase out of Dugway, Utah. I think it was 72 days in, 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 in length, and you know you get very little food, very little sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're put in uh, various stressful situations, and it was just a, a something where you really learn how much you could push yourself in a in a non combat situation. I'll tell you another really cool school that I went to that you didn't mention, uh, was a, a mountain school up in, in Vermont run by the Vermont national guard. Uh, but a lot of active duty troops go to that mountain school in Vermont. And, uh, I'll tell you the truth, aside from ranger school, that was probably the most demanded, physically demanding school I ever went to. I went to the winter course and, uh, we were getting only about three or four hours of sleep a night and uh, a lot of ice climbing, cross-country skiing, and uh, just just learned a lot about myself at that school as well.
1: I'm currently working with a couple of the guys from the Vermont National Guard. We're partnering up, training the Senegalese Air Force, so I'm going to have to uh, chat with them about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, asked them about that, that mountain school. I think it's at Camp Jericho, uh, Vermont, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Okay, yeah, we'll definitely do that. After all of that, one of the next big crisis that strikes our country was September 11, 2001. Talk to us about the events in your life at that time and uh, the National Guard's role.
0: Yeah. And again, uh, at that time, I was, uh, you know, my, my civilian job was a management consultant. And uh, on the morning of September 11, 2001, I was actually in the air, flying from Scranton, Pennsylvania to uh, O'Hare, Uh, airport in in Chicago uh, when this attack occurred. And I remember landing uh, at at Chicago and the pilot uh, coming on and saying, hey, you know, we're going to have to sit on the tarmac here. The the gates are jammed up. And I was thinking, "Okay, this is O'Hare. That's normal. And then uh, my wife calls me on the phone and she says, did you hear what happened? I said, no. Why did she told me? And, uh, the pilot happened to be walking down to aisle at the time. Cause we had been sitting there for a while by this time. And he, and he said, Oh, did somebody tell you what happened? I said, yeah. And so then he immediately went and made an announcement over this, over the uh, intercom because he figured other people would be getting calls too. And he figured he might right. as well just announce it and, uh, got off, finally got off the airplane and the place was just a complete bedlam there, of course. And then, uh, for the next couple of days, uh, really couldn't concentrate on work obviously. And uh, as a matter of fact, I always wondered about people who could, who could concentrate on work at, at, at that time, uh, you know, in terms of civilian work. And uh, ended up driving a car back from Chicago to uh, Pennsylvania because there were still no flights at the time. And, and um, then in, in uh, early 2002, uh, you know, I was commanding a brigade at the time, uh, the 55th Brigade, Northeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, was uh, my brigade was tapped to go over to uh, Europe in early 2002 to do a force protection mission uh, where I took 2,000 National Guard soldiers over to Europe and had these National Guard soldiers distributed through Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Belgium to guard U.S. Army installations there because, of course, we weren't sure what was going to continue to happen with terrorist attacks. And uh, the thought was, if we have our National Guardsmen guarding the gates of these army installations, these active duty soldiers who are over there could focus on training to go into Afghanistan or wherever they were going to go. And so uh, uh, that, that was an interesting experience for me Uh, To be able to take 2000 soldiers overseas to do a mission, you know, it wasn't a combat mission, but it was still a mission. So uh, for me, it was certainly an honor to to be able to do that. And the soldiers uh, performed well over there, you know, they did their job, you know, it doesn't sound like a very sexy job guarding the gates at at US Army posts, but it was a necessary job and the soldiers were proud to be doing that.
1: Yeah, it's vital. Yeah. From January 2005. To so August 2006, you were the commander of the Second Brigade, Twenty Eighth Infantry Division, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in uh, Ramadi, Iraq.
0: Yeah, no, I was just going to say it was unusual because, as I mentioned, I had I commanded Fifty Fifth Brigade for just over three years, and uh, and then I had an opportunity to uh, become the commander of of Second Brigade. Too, not too many uh, colonels have an opportunity to command two different brigades. Yeah. And uh, to be able to take um, uh, the, the uh, National Guard unit that I took over to Ramadi, Iraq, which was considered one of the most dangerous places on the face of the earth at the time, uh, was a tremendous honor. Uh, and uh, basically, the brigade I commanded in Ramadi consisted of about 5,000 soldiers and Marines, because Al-Anbar province uh, at that time, uh, was the um, uh, basically the area of operation that uh, a Marine division was in charge of. And so uh, here, here I was, a National Guard Army Brigade commander in Ramadi, Iraq, task organized to a Marine division. And then I had an active duty Marine battalion task organized to my Army brigade. And then I also had an active duty um, Army battalion task organized to my National Guard brigade. Uh, so it was just, just uh, you know, joint multi-component yeah. uh, uh, mission in a, in a very, very lethal environment. Uh, and, y- you know, I, I unfortunately, I, we did have uh, 82 of our soldiers, Marines, and sailors get killed over there during that one-year time frame and had another over 250 wounded seriously enough where they had to be evacuated back to the United States. So it was very violent. Uh, but the way our soldiers and Marines and, and Air Force personnel and, and, and sailors who were all part of this brigade looked at it is, if somebody had to do it, why not us? You know, yeah. somebody had to be there. And um, all, of, all of these uh, uh, great warriors went in there with the right attitude and remained true to their army and, and other military values while they were there and, and performed superbly. So I'm so proud of, of being part of that team.
1: Yeah, that team, the brigade was, like you said, 5,000 U.S. soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailors, added an additional 5,000 Iraqi soldiers yeah. um, during that one year you were there. Uh, what was one thing you learned from interacting with all the various branches?
0: That, you know what, when, when the bullets are flying, it doesn't matter what branch you are. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're National Guard or active duty, uh, as long as you're competent and, and are character based uh, you, you, get, you get the respect of, of, of everyone. So, uh, that, that that's what I learned. It, it doesn't matter what color your uniform is. And it doesn't matter if what, what, you know, if you're a reserve component or an active component, uh, everybody, uh, it, it's all based on competence and character. And, and that, that would lead, that is what leads to trust. And that's what it's all about.
1: During that time, talk to us about, I've heard you tell the story before, but for a listeners who's may not heard, the events of September 19, 2005.
0: Yeah, on uh, September 19 2005, I, uh, we had just recently uh, moved into an area that the brigade that was there before us never was able to move into simply because uh, they were tasked with many other uh, operations. But we We went into uh, an area in South Ramadi known as Tamim and set up an observation post and a combat outpost uh, at a railroad bridge going over a canal there. And as I said, it was an area, the brigade that was there before us never really had an opportunity to to operate continually in. And uh, we had, uh, one of our uh, patrols was out that day. It was led by Lieutenant Dooley who was a Vermont National Guardsman. And as he was uh, in a mounted patrol, four up armored Humvees with his platoon, and he began to to get insurgent fire from a railroad bed, south of the position he was currently in. And he gave the order to his platoon to action on that insurgent position to destroy them. And as they were maneuvering toward that insurgent uh, element, uh, a subsurface improvised explosive device detonated right directly under Lieutenant Dooley's up-armored Humvee, and it instantly killed him, and Sergeant Egan and Specialist Fernandez, uh, two Pennsylvania National Guardsmen who were part of his platoon. And uh, when whenever attacks like that would occur, uh, we would try, if, if we could, to secure the area and do a post-blast analysis to determine the type of tactics, techniques, procedures the insurgents were using, type of ordnance they were using, the type of, of, of uh, uh, bomb they were using. And uh, we, we, sent, we secured the area, and we sent uh, Gunnery Sergeant Michael Burkhart, a Marine, uh, down there with his team. It consisted of uh, Burkhardt himself and, and two young Marines. They went down there to that area to do a post-blast analysis. Uh, and uh, when, when Burkhart got down there, Gunny Burkhart got down there, he saw the destroyed-up-armored Humvee and saw a large crater near it about four feet in uh, in diameter, a couple feet deep. He made a quick assumption. That's where the roadside bomb had been placed that destroyed the subarmored Humvee. So he jumped down in the crater. And as soon as he did that, he realized uh, he was in a little bit of trouble because once he got in the crater, he saw two artillery shells with red detonation cord running into the nose of those artillery shells, a live roadside bomb a couple feet away from him. So he took his K bar knife, cut the red dead cord, He didn't see a third artillery shell placed in the crater behind him. An insurgent was off in the distance watching, had a detonation device, a wireless detonation device, clicked the button on it, artillery shell detonated, knocked Gunny Burkhart about 15 feet into the air. Uh, Oh, and by the way, just to add to the chaos and confusion, there was a reporter from the Omaha World Herald down there on the scene, uh, an embed reporter at the same time, but Gunny Burkhart knocked into the air, uh, landed on the ground uh, unconscious, pants soaked with blood. The soldiers who were there called the in a, a, a helicopter to come in and 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 medevac him out of there. They cut the pants off. Gunny Burkhardt started attending to the wounds on his legs. Finally, he regained consciousness, <clears throat> and uh, and when he regained consciousness, he he asked the soldiers if he had his legs because he had no no uh, feeling from the waist down. And Gunny Burkhart told me himself that the reason why that was the first thing on his mind about the, do I have my legs was because of his dad. His dad served two tours in Vietnam and on his dad's second tour in Vietnam, he was shot in the back by a sniper and Gunny Burkhart had to grow up as a young boy with the pain of seeing his dad being confined to a wheelchair and his dad was still alive and Gunny Burkhart's worst nightmare was to return back to the United States also in a wheelchair. He didn't want his dad to have to see him like that. And so uh, the soldier said, no, Gunny, you got both of your legs, you know, they're, they're intact, they're fine. And uh, a few minutes later go by and he gets this tingling sensation in his legs and he tells the soldiers he wants to try to stand up and they couldn't believe this because just a few minutes ago he was blown up with a roadside bomb. But he struggles to his feet and he's standing there. Hel- helicopter lands on the ground behind him. And the soldiers uh, tell Gunny Burkhardt uh, that, you know, they wanted to get on the stretcher so they could carry him to the chopper. And uh, Burkhart looks at them and he says, I'm not going to have you carry me to the chopper on that stretcher. I'm going to walk there under my own power because I don't want the insurgents to have the pleasure of seeing me being carried to a chopper. And as he said that, he raised his, his arm into the air and threw what we'll call a one finger salute to the insurgents. And that reporter from the Omaha World Herald took that picture at that exact moment. So there's Gunny Burkhart uh, standing there, no pants on, uh, groin protector protecting his groin. Um, so the picture was, you know, <laughs> was was okay for prime time, if you know what I mean. And uh, raising his left hand to, to the air, throwing the finger to the insurgents. And the reporter takes that picture. And actually, if people Google. Gunnery Sergeant Michael Burkhart, you'll come up with that picture. And it's and uh, later on that day, uh, the reporter comes up to me and he goes, hey, I know it was a tough day for you losing the soldiers you lost. He goes, but he goes, I want to show you a picture I took. And he goes, I won't release this picture unless you give me your personal permission. And he, and he uh, raises the, the screen to his laptop and he brings up the picture on the screen. And I see that. And I said, you got to release this picture. I said, uh, you know, that, that that's a picture people need to see. And really uh, that picture became, you know, for our brigade in Ramadi, Iraq, just, just a, a symbol of the determination our soldiers and Marines and others uh, showed as we fought the insurgents in that very violent area. And uh, the, the leadership part of the story is, uh, a, a, again, a couple of things. Gunny Burkhart was never evacuated any further than our forward operating base in Ramadi. He stayed on that forward operating base and he recovered from his wounds there. Four weeks later, he was out there again, neutralizing roadside bombs. But he told me that the reason he didn't want to be carried to that helicopter on the stretcher had nothing at all to do with what the insurgents were thinking. Remember, I told you that he had two young Marines out there with him. He knew he was gonna have to recover from those wounds. And he knew that those two young Marines would be out there probably later on that day, neutralizing roadside bombs. The reason he wanted to walk to that helicopter was because he didn't want to shatter the confidence of those two young Marines. He wanted to show them that, hey, I got blown up, but it's okay. So the point, the leadership point is as a leader, Gunny Burkhart was even after 15 minutes after getting blown up, was more concerned with the welfare of those two young Marines than he was concerned with his own wounds. And I like to say, isn't that what leadership is all about? Being more concerned with those you lead than for your own welfare. And that's exactly what Gunny Burkhart demonstrated.
1: I appreciate you sharing that story. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better leadership example than that one you just shared right there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, another thing about that, that area that you were just describing, and it's something that's come up in several of the podcasts that we've been doing is post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, PTSD. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give for anyone who feels like they've either uh, been suffering from it or they're not quite sure, um, you know, wh- what would you have for them?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, the advice I would give is, 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 you got to find somebody to talk to, you know, if, if, if you don't have somebody like personal in your life to talk to, there's, there's you know, helplines out there and that type of thing, but um, just, just, just talk to somebody. Uh, the other thing I like to say is, no matter what's going on in your life and, and how bad something looks, don't, don't use a, a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And by that, I mean, suicide, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, um, most, most problems will, will pass with time. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a big Tony Dungy fan just because I think he's a very character based leader. And I remember him telling a story about his mother and his mother used to tell them is look at your life as a movie, you know, and you could be watching a movie where some really bad things happen to a person, but then they end up bouncing back and he said, look at, and the mother Tony Dungy's mother used to say, look, look at life that way is don't just take a snapshot of your life, you know, when you're going through something negative, take, take the longer view and and, and know that, Hey, things are going to play out and and things will get better at some point in time. So look at it instead of as, as a still frame, look at your life as a movie uh, where you have opportunities to, to rise above the struggles that you might be currently facing.
1: Yeah, and I think, and we'll get into it when we start talking about um, leadership philosophies and stuff. But I think being vulnerable, transparency, opening up more—I think is is a lot more um, prevalent today than it was. You, you see a lot of—you were talking about your father, a lot of World War II vets, a lot of Vietnam vets. They, they—it's really hard for them to open up and talk about stuff they've seen. But I think now we've we've bred more of a culture where you know, sit down, talk to someone, and. I had somebody sit down in my office and, and tell me about uh, a traumatic experience they'd been through and they didn't even realize what they were telling me was was signs of PTSD um, until they, yeah. they sought after the help they needed.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely.
1: Now, I appreciate that, that input, sir. And anything significant in your career that really, really stands out to you and the, the tail end from around your, your 30-year mark up until your retirement?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's, there's, you know, from a military perspective, I think there's three things. Uh, one was, um, the, when I, I, we didn't mention this, but in, in the year 2000, I had the opportunity to spend one year in Lithuania as a colonel, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a National Guard colonel, I was sent to Lithuania because uh, Lithuania is a state partner with the Pennsylvania National Guard. And uh, I was sent over there to be uh, what they call the military liaison team chief which meant I worked with uh, an active duty Marine an active duty uh, Army major and an Air Force NCO. And the four of us working in Vilnius, Lithuania, uh, our job was to bring in uh, small teams from various components and services from the U.S. military over to Lithuania to provide information to the Lithuanians on, on how the U.S. military conducts business. And uh, this was only seven years after the Lithuanians regained their independence from, from the Soviet Union. Uh, so that was a, a very uh, defining period in my life just to be in that type of situation and work with, with people from that country uh, who turned out now to be just fantastic NATO allies of ours. Uh, the, the other thing, uh, and we mentioned it already, was that, that time in Ramadi, Iraq, which I learned so much from. And then uh, you know, commanding the 28th Infantry Division, uh, a division of 15,000 soldiers, uh, was a fantastic experience. And then the culminating uh, assignment uh, in, in my career was uh, three years at U.S. Army Europe as one of the Deputy Commanding Generals there from 2016 until 2019, where I had the opportunity to, to, to travel on business to about 40 different European countries, Uh, visit our, uh, many of our, you know, our troops training in in these countries, visit with many uh, foreign chiefs of defense and and other foreign leaders. And, and just really, it was all about security cooperation, you know, working with these countries, many of them NATO allies, some of them partners of ours, and, and, and uh, helping them understand what the United States military is all about, what our values are all about. And that was a, just a great way to end a 40-year career. Yeah, at uh, Wiesbaden, correct? Yeah, our headquarters is, is a headquarters of U.S. Army Europe is in Wiesbaden, Germany, and, and that's where I was uh, headquartered at, but as I said, I was, I was traveling just about every week to some country, and uh, it was a great experience.
1: That's like tough life over there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, Europe, as, as we were talking before we, <laughs> we started recording today, Europe is a uh, Just, just, just a great place to be. I mean, I love the United States. I think the United States is the greatest country in the world. But, but uh, yeah, Europe is is uh, certainly uh, an exciting and fun place to be. It's
1: the experience over there. Yeah, yeah. What was the toughest part of transitioning from forty years uh, active duty National Guard to the retirement phase? Because I have some friends now who are right there at that mark where they're about to retire, and that's like one of the biggest things I ask is like, what are some of the biggest hurdles?
0: If yeah, to I, you know, you know, just just a quick story, you know, when we were over, um, you know, we, we lived on a military post when I was on active duty back at Fort Lewis. And uh, it, we lived on a military post, uh, you know, Clay Concern in, in Wiesbaden. And, you know, when you when you're on a military post, all the neighbors just gravitate together, you know, uh, you know, you move into the house and all the neighbors are coming over, introducing themselves and you're, you're just part of that neighborhood immediately. And then when we uh, left Europe in the spring of 2019 and came back to South Central Pennsylvania, you know, moving to a a house in a neighborhood here and, you know, in a civilian neighborhood, it's not the same. You know, everybody just doesn't come over and welcome you uh, uh, like they do in in the military. So it's it's that whole family environment of being in the military. You know, when you're in the military, uh, your fellow soldiers or airmen or whomever are, are, are part of your, your family. Yeah. And you just don't normally get that in, in most civilian experiences. So I think that was one of the, the hardest things. And the other thing is the shared values we have in the military. I mean, the military, no matter what, I know each branch of service has its own values, but uh, you know, the values are very, very similar. And, and we share those values as, as military personnel and again, in the civilian community, not everybody necessarily has such uh, close knit shared values. So those are probably the, the biggest things. And then just from my own personal perspective, you know, with the position I had, I always had a, a team of advisors around me for at least the, the last part of my career. And um, I, I love working on, on a team and I love getting recommendations and suggestions and bouncing things that, you know, I, you know against some, somebody's thought process and getting getting their opinion back. And you know transitioning out of the military, I'm kind of uh, um, you know a, a team of one for the most part and what I found I had to do is I had to consciously go out and create a team around me of uh, trusted advisors I, li- I like to call them that I could you know call up on the phone or email or you know um, just, just just ask their opinion of something because, you have that built in in the military, you don't necessarily have that built in in the civilian environment.
1: 40 years to culminate your career, 40 years of military experience. Uh, How would you describe that?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, surprising. Uh, You know, when I joined as a second lieutenant in 1978, I never thought in 2019, I would still be serving in uniform, especially over in Europe. Uh, So I mean, you know, I joined because I wanted to see the world, get out of my hometown. Uh, But as I served in in the military and learned about our values, saw what great people serve in the military, it it just became an honor to to serve this fantastic country of ours. So um, I I think what it left me with after the 40 years was a feeling that the Army did a lot more for me than I did for it. Uh, it, you know, I, I learned so much. I met so many great people, uh, gained so many friends uh, that I am so thankful that I had that that experience. And I, and and again, just just an honor to serve one's nation because I, I do love this country. I I do think that this country is a beacon of liberty for for many people. I will tell you, even in the 2016 to 2019 time frame, as I served in Europe. Uh, many European allies and other partners confided in me that, how much they respect the United States. Uh, and, uh, I don't care when this country does have its faults and we're trying to work through a lot of those faults. Uh, but I, I truly believe it's, it's, uh, the greatest country. Uh, I, I'll put it to you this way. You know, when I would fly back into Frankfurt, I would see, um, a pretty much a um homo yeah you know, j- just pretty much a uh, a group of the same type of people standing in line as they were going through the the passport control yeah but you fly into Dallas airport or 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 I should say, yeah you fly into Dallas or you fly you fly into Philadelphia uh, or any large airport on the east coast from Europe and you see the diversity standing in line uh, with American passports. And this is just such a diverse country, uh, I think more so than any other country. Uh, and, and, and it's about, you know, it is a country of immigrants, even to this day. Now the immigrant population is changing a little bit. And, and again, that just makes our country a a richer country, I think. So uh, that, that, the thing that stands out to me is, is, is People from other countries still see this country as a beacon of liberty and freedom and a country where they could have uh, any opportunity that they that they wish for here. So a couple
1: of things I want to talk about um, outside of just your military career. First, annually, you do a 28-mile ruck march.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, this. this is something we start, I think, Yeah, I I haven't missed a year. I think we've done it now nine years in a row and um, uh, started this when I, when I was uh, full-time with the National Guard uh, at the, uh, we call our joint force headquarters back in, I think it was 2011, um, was talking to some of the soldiers there about Going down and doing the Bataan Memorial uh, Death March in, in White Sands, uh, New Mexico, and um, as it turned out, we did not do that. But instead, we decided to create our own ruck march at in Town Gap, Pennsylvania. Uh, same same uh, rules and and model that after the Baton uh, Memorial Death March in in White Sands, uh, where. Uh, our, ours is a little bit longer. It's 28 miles instead of 26.2 for the 28th Infantry Division, the division that I had the honor of serving in so many years. And uh, it's, it's on 49 in-town Gap, Pennsylvania. So it's very, very hilly and, and, and tough terrain that you have to negotiate with a 35-pound rucksack. And uh, there's, there's four divisions. There's military-heavy, 35-pound ruck, civilian-heavy, 35-pound you know, backpack, or military light, you, you do the 28 miles without a ruck. Or civilian light, you do the 28 miles without a ruck. So I've done it every year since it started. Even even when I was over in Europe, one year I went down to Kosovo and did it down there. Uh, did two other uh, uh, 28 mile rucks, uh, shadow events in, in Germany. And uh, we have Lithuanians doing it now. Uh, wow. and, and this year, because of the COVID uh, pandemic, Uh, it was done virtually. And there's a a friend of mine, Wes Gray, he's, uh, he lives in Philadelphia. Uh, He's in the financial industry, and he has uh, associates from all over North America doing it now. They were coming to Town Gap to to do it. And this year, because it was virtual, uh, people from all over the United States were doing it virtually this year. And I did it virtually as well. Um, And it's, 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 the the reason we do it is to uh, it's to honor fallen warriors. It's called the, the March for the Fallen, and people who do this event uh, will do it in honor of a fallen warrior from any service in any era. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't have to be somebody from the 28th Infantry Division who who is who, who died. But um, and and it's it's just a great way to me. I call it a living memorial. Yeah, it's it's a way to keep the memory of a fallen warrior alive, because you're doing something physical, you're, you're sweating, you might bleed a little bit, uh, you might shed a tear as you're thinking about this fallen warrior, and it's just a fantastic living memorial to that fallen warrior. And I think whenever we do something like that for a fallen warrior, we keep their spirit alive. Yes. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's just a, such a powerful, important thing to do for our fallen. I think and, that's and, awesome. And the Gold Star families really appreciate it too when they know that their their loved ones are not being forgotten.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's amazing. And then you you don't stop with just that. You also uh, are a recipient of the Boy Scouts of America Silver Beaver Award. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about your involvement with uh the Boy Scouts.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I was in the Scouts when I was uh young and and uh, I didn't really you know, none of my friends joined the scouts with me when I was young, so I didn't really enjoy it that much. So I only stayed in for a short time, but then, you know, uh, I'm a father of two children. And so, uh, my wife and I started a, a cub scout pack, uh, back up in Northeastern Pennsylvania and got our, our kids involved in the cub scouts. And then they yep. both matriculated into the boy scouts. And so my involvement was as a, a boy scout leader. You know, I went to, uh, uh, leaders you know boy scout uh, leadership training because I wanted to make sure I was doing it the right way and uh, just stayed involved with this with with the scouts and then I was on uh, the board for a period of time uh, uh, of uh, the Hawk Mountain Boy Scout Council out in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania uh, while I was living out in that area and uh, that's where I was given that 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 award and uh, again it's just about trying to help young people uh, learn leadership and, and become productive members of society.
1: I was going to ask, what are some of the, the big similarities you've seen between Boy Scouts and the military?
0: Yeah, I, I think the emphasis on values and the emphasis on service. Those are the main two similarities. And, you know, the Boy Scouts is not meant to be a paramilitary organization at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but it's meant to be an organization that teaches leadership, uh, teaches values and, and teaches community service.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. and so since then, um, you also have a uh, leadership consulting firm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, uh, the name of the consulting firm is is Leader Grove, uh, and uh, the reason it's called Leader Grove is you could visualize a grove of trees because I I believe leaders are are grown and cultivated over time, you know, and I think everybody has. Some level of leadership ability in them that could be cultivated and made even stronger if they go through the right type of training, have the right type of mentors, and and that type of thing. And I know you train leaders yourself, so yeah. I, I I believe you you would uh, agree with that philosophy. And and what I do at Leader Grove, you know, I'm an ex- executive coach. I have uh, several clients uh, uh, that that I coach, and uh, also conduct uh, leadership training and, and leadership workshops. And since March, uh, many of these uh, uh, workshops have been done virtually. Uh, but, uh, you know, I conduct these workshops. I'm also a keynote speaker and uh, just love doing it because, you know, just just Bodhi, I mean, I love being on this podcast because we're talking about leadership and talking about things that I feel are very, very important uh, in my life and I think are very, very important to this country and to the world. So uh, any, anything we could do to promote uh, values, character, leadership, I think is is a, is a good thing.
1: And I think that's awesome what y'all are doing, and especially with everything that's happened with COVID. And it's so accessible now to, to access all these different um, opportunities and, and interact and connect with all these different people. And yeah, I absolutely love uh, if you go to their site, leadergrove.com, it, you'll see the trees and everything on there. And actually I I love the quote at the beginning. It says we grow leaders. We believe that leaders are grown, not built. Um, I've never really been a fan of the trait theory where it's, you know, leaders are born, not necessarily made because I would argue, why do you send them through professional military education um, if, if that's the case, but no, absolutely. It's really good stuff. And also tell us about, uh, six Sigma.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm really big into process improvement and, uh, you know, when I was working with Greencastle Associates Consulting uh, uh, several years ago, uh, I went through Six Sigma training, which is really all about uh, improving processes within organizations and, and making organizations more efficient by the way they, they do work. And uh, this not only applies to manufacturing facilities, but it applies to service industries too. And uh, it's, it's just, being able to do, and then there's a big leadership component to it. So it's, it's, it's really um, using certain uh, skills and procedures and techniques to have people do work more effectively and more efficiently uh, and, and feel more, more fulfilled with the type of work they're doing.
1: Yeah, I know that's a big push right now is continuous process improvements, doing more with less. And, yeah, and I know I know the Air Force is real big on that too. Spark Tank, all that stuff that's, yeah. that's out. It's a really good time for, for innovation. Um, and you've got, what, you're a Six Sigma black
0: belt? Yes, I, I, I was trained as a Six Sigma black belt. And um, again, I, I, I believe in it. And uh, I've, I've used that in a lot of the consulting work that I do.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And one thing that really, um, you know, when, when I heard you on some other podcast and Uh, was reading up more about you that really just, I don't know, it kind of gravitated me towards you uh, even more so was that even after 40 years of experience in the military, you still consider yourself a student of leadership rather than an expert of leadership. And I know when I came into the Air Force in 2009, I had someone in my work center who had been in like five or six years. They'd been in for a cup of coffee compared to you. And they, I remember they had said something where it was like, uh, if you ever need advice on anything, come to me. I got all the answers. There's nothing that's, um, you could ask me that's going to stump me or that I won't know. And I automatically just by them saying that I kind of lost credibility. They lost credibility with me in my mind because I'm like, you should always be learning and striving to do more. Um, so what is it that still drives you to, to be uh, a student of leadership, uh, at this point in your life?
0: Yeah, because, um, I realize I don't have all the answers, and um, you know I, I still maintain a vibrant life where I, I still am involved, uh, you know, not only with the company I run but also with various, uh, uh, you know, volunteer efforts and, and and all that. And in order to move forward, it, it, it takes effective leadership, and I just want to be able to be the best leader I could be, and I don't think I'm I'm there yet, and. And the thing is, you know, you you just look out at the world and and you take a look and and you read uh, autobiographies and biographies on some very famous leaders. And you could see even at very advanced and senior stages of of leadership, people still make mistakes. Uh, You know, how many, you know, how many CEOs of companies or or presidents of various countries have have made mistakes, you know, leadership mistakes. And, and uh, so I believe that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's incumbent on anybody who's in a leadership position to continue to self-evaluate themselves and continue to learn as much as they could. And, and, I, and I believe that, you know, you, you talked about vulnerability earlier. And I think one of the aspects of, of uh, being a good leader is allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And one of the ways you allow yourself to be vulnerable is to ask other people who work for you or who follow you what their opinion is or what they think of something because they they may have a, a much better solution or answer than 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 you have uh, and and you know some and yeah you have to make yourself vulnerable in order to ask somebody those type of questions yeah. hey what would you do in this situation what do you think about this uh, and I and I think that's extremely important other thing with vulnerability uh, and I mentioned. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about it earlier about uh, you know developing other leaders, you know, it's an incumbent upon leaders to try to develop other leaders. And and one of the ways you could do that is by telling personal stories about yourself and ideally stories about mistakes that you made in the past and how you overcame those mistakes or failures that you had in the past and how you overcame those failures, especially in this time of the pandemic. You know, if you're leading a team now and let's say you're leading a, a, a team in a virtual environment, um, you, know, you may have days where you feel a little bit down or you know, you're struggling a little bit because of everything that's going on. And to be able to share that with, with, with your followers and let them know that, yeah, you know, like yesterday I had a bad day or last weekend I had a bad weekend. And, but you know what? I was able to get through that. I was able to motivate myself again. And I think that inspires people. Because when they see that, hey, a leader, <laughs> their leader even gets down now and then, but they're able to, to motivate themselves, self-motivate themselves to get back up. I could do that too. So I, I think that's all part of vulnerability is, is, is doing those type of things.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I remember recently, it was actually the last virtual class I had. We've been teaching so much virtual and uh, I, I was just, I'd reached like a burnout point but I came in taught and I came back the next day and was just kind of small talking with the class. And I said, look, yesterday, what'd y'all think? They're like, it was a great lesson, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, I was burnt out, but I had to, you know, put that mask on and go in there and and give it everything y'all had. And um, I actually had someone message me and say the same thing. They're like, I was so burnt out, but I had to put that mask on. And I think um, you brought up a good point. uh, Vulnerability, transparency, intellectual humility, You've got to, you're talking about balancing that bike earlier. You got to have a healthy balance of that. Pride will weigh it all down sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those three are are, are so much more important. Um, Now, a couple of uh, questions here. Some people reached out to some people when we told them that you were going to be coming on here. So some of the questions they wanted to ask was in the military, especially, and I think in corporate world, you know, titles um, carry a lot of weight as well. But whether you're a civilian, whether you're military, other and we'll, we'll ask you specifically, other than your rank and title, why should someone follow you?
0: Well, I think I think it's it's based on character and it's based on competence. Uh, you know, you've you've got to show that uh, you have the character whereby, you know, your word is your bond. You could be trusted. Uh, but then you also have to have the skills that you need to do the job that you're placed in to do and, and to lead other people. So I think, um, you know, if you have solid character and, and 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 you continue to work at your trade and get more competent. And not only the technical competence of your job, but also the competence of of decision making, of problem solving of being able to put an action plan together to provide others a vision, to uh, professionally communicate to people and show listening skills and to uh, give people the time to help them develop and and help mentor those people. Because I think that has to do with competence too. Uh, If you show people that you've got that uh, strong character and that you have that, that competence and you're continuing to try to get better at your trade, um, that that's a reason people should, should follow somebody. Yeah. How, what kind of stock do you put in uh, relatability? Oh, you mean uh, ju- just the um, ability to be able to relate to other people and, and to, yeah, I think emotional intelligence is something I talk about a yeah. lot. And, and when I talk about emotional intelligence, I'm talking about, uh, first of all, the internal attributes of emotional intelligence, which means being self-aware and once you're self-aware, being able to control those emotions. And then once you're self-aware and you're able to control those emotions, having the self-motivation to move yourself from a, 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 a dark place that you might be into a better place so you could be more, more productive. Those to me are the internal attributes of, of emotional intelligence. And then the, the external attributes of emotional intelligence is, is showing empathy, Having the ability to understand how somebody else is feeling, and then having relationship skills uh, to be able to relate to to people. And you know, as as a retired general, you know, I have to be able to relate to to a, a young private coming into the army, and and to a, a senior civilian leader who I might be reporting to. Uh, so just being able to relate to to you know that uh, large range of, of, of people is, is important. I think, I think one of the ways to do that people might say, well, how do you relate? I think just, just be yourself, Yeah. be authentic. Don't try to be somebody that you are not. If you are just yourself and, and you're authentic and you show people, uh, dignity and respect, uh, all those things goes a long way in, in being able to relate to somebody. I heard last week, the
1: easiest job in the world is to be yourself. The hardest job is to try to act like someone else.
0: Exactly. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't say that any better. Yes.
1: Another thing I want to ask you too, it, since we're on kind of the, the leadership theme here, I heard you on Llama Lounge. If y'all haven't checked it out, episode 24. Y'all, listeners know I'm a huge fan of everything they do over there. An offensive mindset. In that episode, you were talking about your own internal core values. Uh, Please explain that to our listeners.
0: Yeah. I mean, my, my, uh, my own core values, I, I have, I have five of them. And I remember when I was in my late twenties, I was at a dinner and there was a, you know, a speaker there, a keynote speaker. And this keynote speaker was speaking about their core values and, and why these core values were so important in them being a success in their life. And as I was driving home from that dinner, I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, if somebody asked me what my core values are. Could I just tell them? I thought, no, I can't. You know, like, yeah, I have values, but I never really thought, what are my core values? So I, I went on kind of an intellectual journey. It took me about six to nine months to really self-reflect and try to come up with, hey, what are my core values? And, and I came up with with, with five of them. And, and those include service, persistence, integrity, commitment, and energy, having high energy. And, um, and, and what those things mean to me is even when your back is against the wall, you're going to be true to those values. You know, it's easy to be true to your values when things are going well, harder to be true to your values when things aren't going so well and you might be tempted to not display integrity or not to serve others or to give up, you know, and not, not be persistent in, in, in something. So, uh, or, you know, not to show that energy that you need to show when you're leading people, you know, people don't want to be led by an energy sponge, (laughs) you know, they want to be led by somebody who generates energy in in that team. So all those things I think are, are very important. And, um, And I I think if if a person hasn't really reflected on what their own core values are, they should really take the time to do that. Because again, uh, you know, uh, being in any most organizations have their own organizational values, which are important. Uh, But I, I think on top of that, people should really reflect on what their personal values are. And when you know what your personal values are, then you could better choose what organization to join because you want your personal values to align with those organizational values.
1: When was a time in the latter part of your career that really stood out to you, uh, when you had to, uh, transition to more of a followership role?
0: Yeah, I think when, uh, I I think every position I've been in, you know, and I've commanded a lot of different units from a company all the way up to a division, Um, but everyone always has a boss, you know, no matter what, Uh, no matter, you know, what, what role you have. And as a leader, there's always somebody you've got to report to. And a, a few things I learned about the importance of followership is you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're publicly um, criticizing your boss uh, to, to people who are following you, because uh, I think uh, that really casts a, a, a poor light upon yourself. And the other thing is, is uh, I, I do think you have to uh, be prepared to uh, voice your opinion to the person who, who is leading you, uh, but when that person makes a decision and if it's a lawful decision, uh, you need to then uh, either, you know, uh, support that decision or else just resign, you know. Uh, but I think it's incumbent upon you as a follower to support the decision of, of, of the leader that, that you're following, unless it's something unlawful or something to that degree or unethical. Uh, and, and if you're not willing to Follow an ethical and lawful decision, then you probably shouldn't be part of that organization anymore, and you have to have the intestinal fortitude to to make that type of decision. So I'm not sure if that's where you were going with the question, but that's perfect. Uh, that yeah,
1: yeah, because uh, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Another question that was asked: um, What are your opinions on basic combat training from uh, back when you came in to now, with uh, stress cards, cell phones being allowed? What are your opinions on that?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in it. Uh, I do think resiliency is a big thing. And I don't think people, you know, we talk a lot about resiliency and the importance of someone being resilient. And I define resiliency as not only the ability to overcome adversity or overcome challenges, but also uh, the ability to, to be as, perform in as excellent a manner as you possibly could. So I think there's two uh, elements of of resiliency there. And I don't think people could just become resilient uh, automatically. I think you have to train yourself to become resilient, which means moving out of your comfort zone, taking on challenges, uh, putting yourself in positions where you have to stretch and grow and you don't really feel comfortable. Uh, and, and when you don't feel comfortable, that's how you learn. That's how you stretch. That's how you grow. So I think, I think, um, you know, um, our, our services, our military services have to put that type of stress on those military personnel coming into the service. I mean, not everybody uh, is cut out to be in the military true. Uh, and, and you need to have a certain uh, amount of, uh, you know, of that and intestinal fortitude and resiliency to, to serve because uh, we're, you know, are many times put in real world situations that are not that comfortable. Uh, and, and, and I think we, we do have to realize that, hey, it's okay if somebody joins the military and, they, and they're just not capable of making it through basic training, uh, you know, it's all right. Hey, they tried, but they're just not at this point in their life cut out for that. Maybe in a couple of years, they could try again. Uh, but just just to kind of uh, come up with a, uh, a, a type of model where, hey, we're going to cut cut back on the standards a little bit, cut, cut back on, on the tough part of this training to, to allow more people to make it through, I don't think is is a good thing.
1: Some final questions here to, to wrap this this episode up. What is the biggest thing you learned about yourself through your journey up to this point?
0: I think the biggest thing I learned about myself is I don't, I'm, I'm not a saint. You know, I, I talk a lot about a lot of these things. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes myself. Uh, and I, I think uh, people have to have, have to have that understanding about themselves. As, as now, now and again, you know, you're not going to be up to the standards that you may have set for yourself, uh, but you've got to learn from that failing and then try to move on again. Uh, so that, that's probably the biggest thing I learned about myself is the need to be able to have that uh, introspection uh, in order to, to understand that, hey, some things I'm not going to live up to the standard that I've set for myself, but I'm only a human being. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. And now I'm going to try a little bit harder. So this is actually a two-part so what, what is the one thing you've
1: learned about yourself through this whole COVID situation?
0: Uh, the ability to be able to stay positive and to help others uh, stay positive. I, I've, I've learned about myself. I haven't had this COVID situation, you know, just completely get me down, you know, yeah. and and also I, I've learned about myself, the um, the ability to, to adapt. And, you know, they love to use the term pivot now when yeah. it comes to, to COVID. But you know, I, I went from uh, speaking and, and training in face-to-face environments to doing it virtually, and then trying to get better at conducting these sessions virtually. Uh, and I do that a lot of times by, once I conduct a session, I like to ask uh, participants of the session, uh, hey, what could I have done a little bit differently to have made this more exciting for you, more interesting for you? you know, In the Army, we call it an after action review you know, a lessons learned session. Yeah. Um, and, and I think conducting those lessons learned sessions are, are very important. So we, we continue to, to get better at, at what we're doing.
1: 2020 has been a good year for me. And because I've been able to teach virtual, I had to adjust, had to make changes. But just like you said, you, you teach one, you get feedback, you're open to it, and yeah. you continue to get better. And then the connections that you're probably able to make by doing stuff virtually um, it's crazy compared to how it probably would have been. We probably would not have had this conversation right now if if COVID did not right. happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's 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 a lot, a lot of benefits. You just you just got to be able to be adaptable and and as I said, to pivot and and to make the best out of whatever situation you're in.
1: Make every day your masterpiece. That's it. So final question. I always like to ask this question, to everybody. Fifty years from now, what do you want to be
0: known for? Yeah, I guess I really want to be known as somebody who who cared about my family and who cared about other people and and just really tried to do my best to to serve other people in some way. If I could be known for that, I'll be I'll be uh, happy. Perfect. All right, sir. Well,
1: I want to thank you again so much for taking time. This was awesome. Uh, I was sitting here just listening to to your nuggets you were throwing out there um so this is and it's good stuff that i can take back and i'm sure the audience can i can take this stuff back and apply it to a flight room batista hopped on here and actually stole something we talked about the wilson tim to Toolman taylor uh example i'll find out and get back to you on how that went how bad he butchered your advice (laughs) (laughs) but
0: if uh I, i really appreciate uh you uh and, and Batista, and I think you might have another partner putting this podcast together and, and getting some good messages out there for people. Uh, and th- thank you for your leadership. I know, I know you're training other leaders now, which is really cool. And uh, thank you for doing that.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate everything you've done in your time that you served our country, sir. If people would like to find out more about uh, the ride of our lives, more about you, or to uh, possibly get you for a speaking engagement, where are some links that you can point them to?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the easiest one is is my website, johngronsky.com, you know, J-O-H-N-G-R-O-N-S-K-I, Uh There's a link from johngronsky.com to leadergrove.com. There's a link to uh, the Leader Grove store where you could purchase my assigned copy of my book oh by the way I have a second book coming out uh, it'll be really? out in June yeah June. It's, it's a it's a leadership book uh, yet to be titled uh, one of I guess the working title is general leadership rules I'm not sure if I'm going to go with that title or not uh, but uh, it's it's a leadership book it's really a a, uh, a book based on my my leadership philosophy of character competence and resilience and a lot of personal stories in there and just, just a lot of lessons, but that that's being uh, published by Fidelis publishing and it sh- should be available in June. We're to follow on that. There'll be more information on, on that book on my website as well. But again, uh, to answer your question, johngronsky.com. I'm also very active on social media. Um, John Gronsky leads on Instagram I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, uh, Twitter. It's at JL Gronsky. Uh, I'm on Facebook, John Gronsky leads. So, um, yeah, uh, I hope, uh, your folks will, will ping me uh, on my website and on the social media sites, by the way, uh, if you go to my website, johngronsky.com, you could sign up for a, a free leadership, uh, email that I send out periodically. It's just, uh, some some stuff that I write, some videos that I do, and then some other information I put on there. So uh, check it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, keep us posted on that book and we'll, we'll have it on the Instagram page, Facebook page. Um, we'll keep all the, the listeners updated for when you release that.
0: Yeah, maybe, uh, you know, in, in June or so, uh, you know, about six, seven months from now, I come back and be a guest again and talk a little bit about it
1: Absolutely, that. absolutely. We'll definitely plan on doing that well thank you sir for taking time to join us today folks that is going to wrap up this episode this amazing episode that we just had one more time check us out at facebook at the shadows podcast also on instagram the underscore shadows underscore podcast folks thank you for taking time out of your day to enjoy yet another episode of the shadows podcast Everyone has a story. And next week, we're excited to bring to you the chronicles of Natalie Higby. Natalie is co-founder of The Durable Athlete, a fitness and performer coach, and heavily involved with the junior NBA. Make sure to follow us one more time on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Folks, see you next week for another episode of The Shadows Podcast.